Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 28 through 42. Jonathan replied, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, for we are having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. And now go and get him so I can kill him. But why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. The next morning, as agreed, Jonathan went out into the field and took a young boy with him to gather his arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran, and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, The arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran back to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back to town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. They were best friends since they were around 16 years old. Their friendship begins, as many do, a giant from the Philistine army is taunting the Israelites for over a month, and a good-looking kid, recently anointed to replace the current failing monarch, is transporting some food to his older brothers in the king's army when he boastingly requests a chance to battle the opposing army's humongous champion with the possible reward of a tax-free life and one of the king's daughters for a wife if he should emerge victorious. So shortly after the young man returns to the king with the giant's severed head in his hand, then he meets the king's son, and that instantly forms a bond, a connection. It's immediate. Jonathan loves David, and because Jonathan is a prince, he basically demands that his new best friend would come to live at the palace with the royal family. And David becomes sort of a minstrel for the king, a minstrel the king would occasionally chuck spears at in a jealous rage. If I had a nickel for every friendship story that started in that exact same way. It's pretty clear that this specific friendship was a unique bond forged under unique circumstances. 
We never see or read that Jonathan knew for certain that David was basically chosen by God to remove the bloodline of his father Saul from the throne, but we see an acknowledgement of that in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Jonathan wasn't terrified of being overthrown like his dad was. And his dad was terrified. It would be paranoia, except there were definitely people out to get him. Jonathan did a bit like his father did, like the father did in the returned prodigal son with this act. David was the inconsequential nobody from a place that nobody thought much of at the time. But Jonathan placed on David the garments of belonging and of royalty. In handing his weapons over, Jonathan showed incredible trust. You don't hand your sword and bow to somebody you expect will hurt you or overthrow you. They made a commitment, a covenant, in fact, a promise before God to friendship and to loyalty. We tend not to formalize our friendships like that, and it was a pretty rare event even in the time of David and Jonathan. We don't necessarily mark somebody as family through the exchange of garments, but maybe they're part of our family traditions. We basically consider them a part of our sheltering cluster. Perhaps we don't acknowledge trust by handing over our weapons and by making ourselves vulnerable before them, but maybe we share with those trusted people our secrets that might destroy us if they're widely known, but in the confidence of a loyal friendship, the shame they carry is, is simply undone. And maybe that kind of loyalty and security wouldn't be quite as rare as it is today. I think Jonathan and David can help us discover some of the keys for that. Our first lesson this morning is this. Friendship may mean putting God's plans over selfish ambition. Friendship may mean putting God's plans over selfish ambition. Jonathan replied, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, for we're having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. And Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. Talladega Nights is not a movie that I would ever show in church beyond some highly edited clips, but there are parts of it that are so profound you can't help but to do a little mining. For example, the character of Cal Naughton Jr. is a classic study in best friendship that results in somebody largely stepping aside so that Ricky Bobby can stand in the winner's circle. He's the perennial second place. Even when his ambition gets the best of him, spoiler alert, the pinnacle of the movie has him sacrificing for his friendship and still emerging as a hero. My daughters and I just got done watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, not the director's cut because we would have needed to have started in March, but the story of friendship in that movie is incredible. Samwise Ganji is the embodiment of protective best friend. His hobbit buddy Frodo carries the ring, Frodo gets the glory and the injury that comes with being the person to do this impossible job. When the whole thing is said and done, again, spoiler alert, when Sam tells Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you, there isn't a dry eye in the house. If it weren't for the faithfulness of Sam's character in his resistance in the face of vain ambition, that's a pretty short story. Frodo probably wouldn't have made it out of the Shire. 
Sam was the wind beneath Frodo's wings, you guys. Our favorite stories are filled with these best friends slash sidekicks that didn't seek the spotlight, but they're just as solid as bedrock when it comes to being there for their friends. Through their selfless heroism, evil is conquered. Lives are rescued, victories are won, and goodness prevails. And that's exactly true in the story of Jonathan and David, too. Jonathan was probably raised knowing his destiny was to ascend to the throne of Israel. He was raised as a noble in that time that meant he would have been trained in battle, diplomacy, and administration, and Jonathan was no slouch. He wasn't a shrinking violet unequal to the task. Jonathan was a one-man army and a bit of a beast on the battlefield. Saul disqualified himself to continue in leadership to God's people because he was disobedient in the way that he offered a sacrifice before a battle. Can you imagine a nation's leader being disqualified from leadership for giving an offering before a prophet showed up? Can you imagine that coming up in a debate these days? But still, according to the human customs of their neighbors, especially as Saul's firstborn, if Jonathan wanted to stake his claim to the throne, he would probably be able to amass enough support to do that. But Jonathan listened to God. He listened to God over his own ambitions. He listened to God over his own straying father. He listened to God, and whether he knew it or not, his selfless friendship would play a part in the history of salvation. You know how every Christmas we read from the prophet Isaiah where it says that a shoot will grow forth from the root of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit? And if, if you don't, that is a part of the prophecy around the birth of Jesus. See, Jesse is David's dad. Their family comes from the little town of Bethlehem. Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, is ordered to return to Bethlehem for the census because he is of the ancestral line of David. God would have figured out a way to spare David's life and raise him up and lead a kingdom of a united Israel somehow or other, but this is the way that it happened. Jonathan probably didn't know all the details about how important his friend is in the centuries of history to follow this selfless act of friendship, but because Jonathan was faithful to God over the norms of his culture and his own ambitions, he is a heroic figure in the story of our salvation, yours and mine. We don't know what kind of impact our friendships will have. We don't always know the plans that God has in place for those we honor when we're liberated from our own ambitions. But if we listen and abide in Christ, Jesus will faithfully lead us to offer the kind of loyalty and protection that may have an impact on someone's life centuries from now. Maybe that's delusions of grandeur, but it sure takes a humble form in this story. For example, this is our second lesson. Protecting our friends means we may face attacks intended for them. Protecting our friends means we may face attacks intended for them. Jonathan asked his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. When you courageously stand between a bully and a target, many times the bully will back down. Bullies like easy prey, and they try to build themselves up by punching down on the weaker and more vulnerable. Healthy and confident people who know their own worth have no need of that, so it's almost always a show of insecurity. When someone steps in to confront a bully, the easy target isn't so easy anymore, and more often than not, a bully backs down. But they don't always back down. 
And if someone stands between a bully and a target, they might take hits. That's a real part of being a protective friend. Now Saul already made an attempt on Jonathan's life before this. Saul made a vow to God that nobody should eat before a specific battle. And Jonathan didn't hear the vow and so he tasted some honey. And it was great because he was famished just like everybody else. But then Saul discovered that Jonathan brought a curse on their campaign and he rushed to drop his own son. It was only because the people rushed to spare Jonathan, the hero of the battle that day, that he wasn't killed. And plus, Saul shared some of the blame for making a really stupid and unnecessary vow that wasn't communicated very clearly. But still, the seed of disregard's life for his own, disregard for his own son's life was already planted. And Saul and Jonathan both knew it. No lives mattered to Saul but his own. Not his minstrel slash successors, not his own son's. He had an utter disregard for the sanctity of life, and that was not okay with Jonathan. He challenged the authority of his father, the king, about why David should die. Out of fear? Of jealousy? For what reason should David be put to death? And listen, David was dangerous. David killed the giant Goliath and commanded warriors that fought and won battles handily. David was a baller. He could legitimately do some harm. But to this point, he had been offering his strength and service to the benefit of Saul as a leader in Saul's armies. Saul was jealous. Saul was murderous. Saul was manipulative in his efforts to keep David subservient. And scripture tells us Saul was tormented and afraid of David. The king of Israel, a full-on adult, was afraid of this capable young warrior, his eldest son's best friend, and it drove him mad. His rage spilled over to violence against a man who had only ever served Saul. Jonathan asked, why should this man who has served you so well be put to death? And for the mere question, Jonathan got his father's spear hurled at him. That wasn't a nerf spear in a playful in-palace battle type of situation. This was a spear that apparently Saul kept around for whenever something in the household upset him and he would throw it at whatever that is. When we stand up for others, spears and arrows aimed at them may end up coming our way as well. Let's move this into New Testament territory for a moment. In John chapter 8, teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought before Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught engaging in sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. Why they were watching and what happened to the other person involved in the adultery is an issue that they tend not to explain. But the woman was brought before Jesus for public shaming. They already had stones in their hands to kill her according to the Hebrew laws. They would have been especially satisfied if Jesus messed up his response by siding with Rome over their religion. Then they might be able to kill two people in their stoning party. Who knows? But Jesus didn't give them any satisfaction. This woman may have had some agency in her circumstances, but she may have been objectified and exploited into the circumstances as well. This story spends no time on her level of willful engagement or her victimhood. No time. So I imagine here Jesus' position between the crowd and the accused, standing as a barrier between the raging group with rocks ready to throw and a woman terrified at her shaming and possible death sentence. And in between them, Jesus. Between those who would condemn and the condemned, ready to shield this defendant against a vigilante execution. The deadly intention is those who are anxious to discover someone in a terrible situation and respond to that hardship like sharks respond to the scent of blood. Jesus protected her. 
he stood between this woman and death, writing something in the dust with his fingers, something that seems to have inspired each and every accuser present to drop their weapons and retreat. Every single one. Can you imagine what people were saying about Jesus once he was left alone with the woman? Oh, we've seen the kind of people he hangs out with. He probably wanted to be alone with her so he could have his turn with her. I have no doubt that whatever stones that the crowd dropped from their hands, they didn't hesitate to hurl with their reckless words. Did Jesus speak correction into this woman's life? Yes. Right after he put his own life on the line in her defense. We could do a lot more with the protection part of that equation. The church today gets so caught up in the correction part. Sometimes I fear our balance is off and our failure to protect takes away from our credibility if we ever try to correct. Our third lesson this morning is this. If we vow to resist evil, injustice, and oppression, our actions must reflect that. If we vow to resist evil, injustice, and oppression, our actions must reflect that. Verse 35, the next morning, as agreed, Jonathan went into the field and took a young boy with him to gather his arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran, and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, The arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. And so the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran back to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back to town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile, and David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to town. Vows to resist evil, injustice, and oppression? Grant, I'm not sure I ever made such a promise. Maybe. But if you're a part, a member of a United Methodist Church, you have. I have. When we bring people into membership, I typically ask two questions in front of the congregation. The first is, do you profess Christ to be your Lord and Savior, promise to serve him in union with the church, which Christ is open to people of all ages, nations, and races. If so, say, I do. And then I'll ask, will you be faithful to this United Methodist Church through your prayers, your presence, your witness, your service, and your gifts? If so, say, I will. And so we typically share those things because it's important to share and respond to those in front of the congregation. But there are vows that are a part of our covenant and commitment, ones that typically come up in the discussions that I have with people about membership before the worship service. They're in the front of the hymnals, and you can access those if you'd like. They're like vows of a protective friendship, but for a potentially much larger circle. It's a vow that we promise to accept the power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. This is simultaneously simple and difficult. It seems like standing against evil and wrong would be clear-cut, but somehow our concepts of good and evil can become politically split, right? Our culture tells us we have to choose. We can either grieve for the devaluing of unborn babies or grieve the deaths of people from different racial and ethnic minorities, and we're supposed to pick one. We're sometimes told we have to choose between standing for greater equity and rehabilitation in the criminal justice system, or we choose to appreciate law enforcement officers who put themselves at risk to serve and protect. Somehow we're told we can't hold these parts together. If you check the etymology 
The root of the word politics isn't the same as the root of the word polarized, but it sure seems like they could be. Our news feeds and media streams tell us that political solutions are the most important thing to focus on right now. And I'll give you this. If we vow to accept the power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression, voting is a power given to us. We should use it. But let's bring it very close to home. Who near you is vulnerable? And we've responded with ignoring or negligence. Who's at risk? And we've justified their oppression by thinking that they probably, or that they definitely have done something to deserve it. Who needs an advocate and a friend, but the system and odds are stacked against them in ways that keep us from acting? What does it look like to defend their life, their dignity, their rights, to uphold their worth and humanity? But Grant, what if they're on the other side of the political aisle from me? What if they're sinners? What if they're of a different religion? What if they have no religion? What if they don't deserve it? I get it. And I constantly have to remind myself that I was living across a very significant aisle from God until Jesus protected my life, affirmed my worth, and secured my eternity with his sacrifice, all of which made me instead his friend. If Jesus did that for me, I may not always get it right, but by God's grace, I can extend that to others. I sure want to. It may not be a path of upward mobility. Our ambitions may take a hit. It may cause us to be on the receiving end of stones and spears that were intended for someone else. Our reputations may come into question. You might get called everything but a child of God. Heaven forbid somebody might think that you're doing things to protect others and think that you yourself are weak or fearful. Here's why one of the boldest advocates for Christ in the whole Bible thinks that might not be so bad. The Apostle Paul writes to a Corinthian church, which was overly concerned with image. He says, even though I'm a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I'm no subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Part of our protection is coming alongside others in solidarity so they're not alone. They might sense our presence, but more importantly, they might sense God's. That's why the protection we offer to the vulnerable as friends of God, living as friends to our neighbors. It's part of who we get to be as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. It's who we need to be for one another. It's part of Christ's light that we get to reflect to a world in need. After the agreed-upon sign that these friends shared, Jonathan and David never saw each other again on this side of eternity. The gift of protection was costly to them, but it was the right thing to do. Even when they weren't side by side with each other, they continued to stand with one another. Jonathan's son would become a guest of honor, like a family member in David's household to honor his friendship after Jonathan died. The story of friendship and protection would not be forgotten. It might become part of our calling in God's story. There's a song that is a part of the church that probably you've heard a few times, and if you hadn't, 
It gives us some powerful words. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each one's dignity and save each one's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you have safeguarded us against the most fearful things imaginable. Against death itself. Against hopelessness. Against insignificance. Against shame. Against the harm that others have caused us, those voices that tear us down from within, you have rescued us from those things. You have stretched out a hand of protection. You have given us a covering that safeguards us. You have protected us, God. What a dear and good friend you are. Because you have offered that to us, let us in gratitude extend that to others. Let us be as Jonathan to David. Let us be as Christ to those who have been caught in acts that are deemed wicked and to offer first our protection as a sign of God's love. Let it be a reflection of your goodness, a sign of your grace, and an embodiment of your presence. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.